Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 31. This is a unique two-part show with Stan Wanless. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am extremely excited to introduce my special guest today, Stan Wanless. Stan, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm ready when you are, Mark. All right. Stan Wanless is a painter and creator of limited edition bronze sculptures of automobiles and more. He has taught at universities in both the United States and abroad, including the European Art Academy in Paris. Stan has had a passion for cars his entire life and has collected, restored, and raced since the mid-50s. His collection of automobiles varies from Alphas to Bugattis to Brooklyn's race cars, Indy cars, Ferraris, and 32 Ford Roadsters. His sculptures and paintings echo his eclectic automobile collections and are represented in museums and private collections worldwide, and his historical monuments are located in national memorials, universities, and public places nationwide. So Stan, as we head down your journey, I'd like to start with a success quote, a saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Stan, take the wheel. Well, I've been inspired by a lot of different quotes, and I I do have uh, many of them that help me out a lot. They've helped me over... uh, bad spots and they've inspired me to new heights when I've needed that. I won't bore you with all of them, but there are three, two or three here that uh, might be worth uh, repeating. Wonderful. The world of reality has its limits. The world of imagination is boundless. Jean-Jacques Rousseau mentioned that in the uh, 1700s, and it's always... Uh, it's always resounded uh, with me. I just love uh, anything that's positive. And uh, Einstein uh, went on to say later on that imagination is more important than intellect. Hmm. All important for an artist, uh, an artist view. And then Shakespeare, one of my favorites, is assume a virtue if you have it not. When I was a, a young guy uh, studying art at the university in the late 50s, uh, it was almost impossible to find, uh, to make a living as an artist and uh, to find a job in that area. And so, oh, maybe there was one or two uh, artists, maybe Mark Roscoe in New York was making a little bit. But uh, it was really pretty tough to make it as a fine artist. So um, to be practical, I decided that, that I'd go into medicine instead. Wow. It wasn't until a year or two later that I finally came to the realization that, that I was going to do my real love and the realization of um, of my art career, and I didn't care if I starved to death. So <laughs> I was going to follow my dream. I figured that I'd wasted all those years that I was studying. But later I found out that those years weren't wasted. Uh, my sculpting and painting was immeasurably improved by uh, my medical studies of Oh, such things as morphological anatomy or histology or cadaver dissection or physiology, even kinesiology. And um, to this day, I'm just so grateful that I took this diagonal approach 
and the study of other things besides taking a direct approach uh, to the art field. And uh, my studies of literature and music have greatly enhanced my abilities as well, and they inspire me to this day uh, uh, creatively. When I was a little kid, my dad used to, he was a geologist, and he had a lot of claims uh, out on the West Desert and in the Santa Fe Swell and the Henry Mountains and so forth. And, and he also owned a service station. And I used to kick along with him, and uh, uh, I'd find these old cars laying around, and uh, they were, most all of them were deteriorated to the point that they couldn't be restored, but they always had this beautiful, bright clothing emblem on the radiator. And so I started to collect those as a kid. And I collected hundreds and hundreds of them. And uh, maybe this is one of the things that led me towards automotive art. I don't know, but as I was working on my master's thesis, which was on automotive design, uh, uh, I would look at these radiator emblems, these badges that I had collected and were hanging all over my walls. I got wondering how many different cars there were. So I also included this in my uh, thesis, and I limited my search just to the United States and from 1900 to 1930. Most of the experts at that time thought there were four or 5,000 of them at the most, and I found over 12,000 automobiles that were built in the USA from 1900 to 1930. Oh, my gosh. My search led me all over the U.S. as I got older and to the patent office where I found a lot of things where there were automobile companies in America that only produced one car, like the Lion, for example. They built a car and they took it out as number one, and they were photographing it in front of the factory. And the factory caught on fire and burned down. Of course, that was a one of a kind. Oh, my goodness. One funny note, while I was doing my thesis, my thesis professor was also my design professor. Bless his heart. <laughs> he caused me a lot of extra trouble. My thesis ended up being over 500 pages. And uh, I remember the day I took my first page in and he read it. He pondered it. He looked at it. He turned the page sidewards, and he turned it upside down, and then he said to me, well, it reads reads right, it reads pretty good, he said, but design-wise, he says, you've got a small sentence at the bottom of this page that can't hold all of the words above it. There's too much weight. You've got to rewrite it and have visually a, a larger paragraph at the bottom to hold it so that each page would not only read correctly, but uh, would would read um, uh, design-wise. Uh, it'd have to be proper. It had would have to have all the elements and principles of, of design, uh, from balance and unity and repetition and rhythm. You know, it had to have all of the all of the principles of design. So, my wife, who typed all this, about went crazy, and <laughs> I did too. By the time we got through with all 500 pages. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Well, it's really, really interesting how you incorporated those success quotes into your life and and sharing some of that history with us and especially the medical studies and how it evolved into your artistic side is wonderful. It reminds me of, say, Gray's Anatomy, the the book that uh, is so wonderful where you can look and see the inside of what people look like and so forth. So really, really wonderful story. Is, Is there a point in time that you can share with us when you really knew that you were a 
car guy, that moment that instigated your passion for cars? I I think so. Uh, up and above, of course, when I found the emblems and got interested in automobile design. You know, uh, so I would have to say that hot rods made me an enthusiast. My father had a service station, and so I come by it quite honestly and naturally, I guess. But, you know, when it comes uh, to the automobile, there's really nothing very new under the sun. Almost entirely the stepchild ideas of those that came before us from Europe. Uh, the first car came from Germany, and sports cars came from there, uh, racing cars came from Europe. But hot rods are purely an American phenomena. That's no easy task in this global think tank, you know, that's been going on for a long, long time. And hot rods are an important part of our culture here in America. And uh, they had their beginnings here, and we can proudly call them our own. You know, it's uh, hot rods are an American icon, and uh, they've since spread to every nation in the world that emanated here from America. And I was lucky enough to be part of this phenomenon. In the 50s, all of us hot rodders weren't aware of the importance of the of the movement that we that we were in, we were just merely following our bliss, thinking uh, we'd simply ride our hot rods into the sunset and, of course, into glory somewhere, I, I guess. But in the back of my mind, I was wondering what specifically I could do subjectively with uh, my knowledge uh, and love of the automobile. So as any young person would do, you know, I asked the world a uh, question, and the world answered back to me and said, I answer that I cannot answer. You must find out for yourself. I don't know if you're familiar with that quote or not. <laughs> it's a wonderful quote. So I set up to solve uh, the questions I had. And one thing I really liked about hot rod building, as opposed to just restoring old cars, is that uh, you could create what you wanted as an individual, and the effort became unique, and it would be a subjective creation. One compelled the uh, to adhere to somebody else's precise and restrictive ideas of uh, restoration and their rules, I'd be obligated to paint the car the original color and to make everything exactly as it was as it emerged from the factory, just like the one before it and the one after it, whether I liked it or not. And I really abhorred that idea. I wanted to be free to exercise my dreams, even if others didn't like them. For example, I was looking at uh, my 32 Ford Roadster body, which, by the way, I really love the 32 Ford. I became aware of it, that there's no straight lines anywhere on it, anywhere that is, except the windshield is flat. They weren't able to make a glass then that was curved. I really disliked the way it stood up so tall. It looked like a Model T, you know, and that's the reason most of us uh, chopped our tops and uh, it visually stopped the movement of the car. It seemed really incongruous to the design of the body in it. It needed to lean back as uh, badly as it needed to be chopped. You know, it, uh, I don't know, but that straight up and down thing, you know, with the windshield uh, visually halted the lines of the car. The relative wind couldn't move freely around the beautiful lines of this that are so sweeping on a 32. Unlike the restrictive rules of restoration, I felt like I could change the windshield and make it not only unique, but... Uh, also fit the feelings of the existing car and make it a cohesive unit that would repeat similar design principles that, that existed in the car. And the geometry of the rounded uh, cowl that the windshield set on required a slightly curved windshield glass. So I experimented with it a lot and 
it pretty much dictated I had to have about a one-inch uh, radius on the glass. It was natural to, uh, to repeat the curves, you know, of the, that are on the 32. And to me, all the panels on the, on the 32 seem really turgid. They have a crown in them and passes to them. At first glance, it, they appear to be flat, but they're really not. All the lines and margins and reveals are curved as well. Anything flat would be incongruous to the natural flow of the body. And I learned in my studies of design that symmetry is the enemy of movement. Parallel lines tend to attract each other, and it's really an optical illusion. The longer the lines are, <clears throat> the more they tend to attract. For example, if you uh, uh, if you look at a building that has uh, a column, uh, if the lines were straight, uh, they would uh, in the center they would uh, attract each other, and uh, that optical illusion make them appear to be uh, weak. So. When building their temples, the, the Greeks bulged their fluted columns out in the center. It gives the illusion that lines were straight and strong. But if they built them parallel lines, each edge would attract the other visually and make them appear spindly and really weak. In addition, the Greeks also leaned their columns, their outside columns inward, giving the feeling of uh, solidarity. Uh, made it feel more like a unit. Uh, yet if they were left vertical, the outer columns would appear as if they were falling outward and away from the center. Also, the floors of the buildings were crowned in the center. The intastis that, uh, this intastis would make the floors appear to be flat. If you actually made the floors flat, they would visually sink in the middle and would appear to be very weak. I don't know, I, that's why I think all of us 32 lovers really love, uh, 32s is that uh, we don't look at them intellectually, we look at them emotionally. Anyway, I, <clears throat> the altered windshield isn't just about form, it's also about function. This is the windshield that uh, put together uh, the chopped and laid back windshield that cheats the wind, and the arrow look uh, moves more efficiently through the air, provides better gas mileage, you get fewer bugs, less water, and less snow on the glass. Plus, uh, the, the breeze will flow over your ducktail instead of messing it up. <laughs> and uh, also, uh, while racing, especially out on the flats, uh, uh, the airflow or the burble pushes down on the deck lid. Instead of messing up your ducktail right behind your head, it goes forces the air back over the uh, deck lid and pushes down and uh, gives more traction to the rear wheels. And uh, so this lift-drag coefficient might vary depending on the angle of the windshield sure. uh, and the height of the windshield. And although I was really interested in the efficiency and the function of this thing, uh, the real reason that I designed and built this windshield was to make the car look downright nasty and mysterious, you know, and <laughs> mean and en en enigmatic sure. and to give, uh, give the roadster a real attitude. Well, that is the most amazing description of a 32 I think I've ever heard, especially as we evolved into <laughs> well, gr Greek columns. Well, I did have I did have a more crude laid-back windshield that I built in the late 50s, but with the help of my friend Dick Rodwell, we put together a, a modern wandless windshield in the mid-90s, and uh, now that wandless windshield uh, is in every civilized country of the world. So I wanted to mention that along with that hot rods are in every civilized country in the world now, too. 
Stan, what I want to do now is is take a look at the roads you've driven down a little bit and, and really crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty. Would you share with our listeners a huge challenge or even a great failure during your career that really pushed you to a breaking point and, more importantly, how you overcame that situation? Well, there's sure been enough failures, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, failures are really a step forward. They're not, a, they're not really a step backwards. And uh, having been fortunate enough to live and teach in France and Canada and other places in the U.S., I, I'd try to immerse myself not only in the arts, but also in the local races and the automobile activities. Uh, I love the supercars and the rallies and so forth, especially in Europe. So after a few years, uh, came back to the States. Uh, I taught, taught at a couple more universities, and then I ended up on the Oregon coast. After almost uh, you know 20 years of being a professor, uh, the pay wasn't that much, and there were seven of us. Uh, we had five children. Three of them were triplets, and uh, it's hard to, uh, with the amount of money that you get there, to uh, raise that many children, let alone participating in supercar activities. So I took a year unpaid leave of absence, and it was pretty frightening. There was no uh, no insurance or anything, and uh, and so you know I was I was frightened to the point that I considered not doing it. Uh, but I knew that if I didn't change uh, if I didn't change what I was doing, things would always remain the same there. So. Uh, it was a hard decision, but I wanted to sculpt and paint uh, more, which I'd been doing anyway, uh, moonlighting and all. But <clears throat> anyway, the first year I made almost as much uh, as I did at the university. The second year, about three times as much, and then then it really went crazy after that. The problem, uh, uh, there's essentially no automotive sculpture. When I uh, started sculpting cars, I was just doing it for myself, and uh, consequently there's there was no market at all. Only had a few sales here and there because I was the only one that liked them, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I had to create a market. There hadn't been anything done automotively in sculpture after about 1905. So I called all my sculptor friends that I, ones that I admired and knew like cars, and invited them to show with me at Meadowbrook and Pebble Beach and other Concord Delegates. We finally got a group together. It became huge, and it led to the Automotive Fine Arts Society, which uh, really has opened up the market. And uh, consequently, this has given me a lot of uh, more time to paint and to sculpt automobiles and uh, historical monuments. And uh, in addition, I've been able to participate in, the, in a lot of uh, automotive activities that I neglected for so long, including the automobile salt flats and drag racing and rallies and concours and out here we have the Miller Motorsports Park where we have the American Le Mans and the Ferrari Challenge and so forth. And uh, then for the last eight years, uh, I've been involved with Fast Pass, uh, which is really, I really enjoyed this, Mark. It's been, uh, uh, one of the reasons is that it's uh, all for charity, 100%. And what we do is we invite and have approximately 50 to 60 supercars that come from all over the world. We um, get together at Miller Track, and we take a day there and try and get all the nastiness out of our systems, and then we 
and we take a thousand mile run down through the Red Rock country of Utah. And when we come back at the end of the week, we uh, have this big uh, auction at uh, the Grand America uh, Hotel there, and it's a, a big gala auction. I do a painting every year, sometimes a bronze, just uh, just for this auction that I donate. The painting's used uh, not only for the route book cover, but also. Uh, in poster form to be sold. But then we auction off the painting and we've been able to put together a lot of money for uh, all crippled children, uh, fallen highway patrolmen's families, uh, Navajo Christmas. There are about 16 different uh, charities that we give to. And, and so it's been a lot of fun. Another thing I was able to do is the one bronze I did called uh, San Francisco to New York 03 was about the first continental crossing, and uh, this is a Winton. And uh, the Winton uh, made this 63-day run across the United States, putting the rear wheels in the Pacific, and ended up 63 days later putting the front wheels in the Atlantic. And uh, the Smithsonian had the 100-year recreation of this from 1903 to 2003, we had Ken Burns there chronicling and Pete Kessling's car. There are very few of those left. Uh, Pete asked me uh, to go with him, and so we went partway through Idaho into Wyoming. And consequently, um, I booked the uh, Doctor's Drive, and uh, the uh, film that Ken Burns was associated with is called Horatio's Drive. I think it's about a two-and-a-half-hour film. So... You know, we all have an expiration date, and I'm so grateful I was able to go from uh, uh, from teaching, which I loved, but to uh, to go to to the point that I could do what uh, I wanted to do. And we need to do what we can as soon as we can, because you're uh, at least my goal is uh, to aesthetically improve. You know what I can and share my vision of beauty. So I've been very fortunate that way. Fantastic! I love that. Stan, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. You touched on it a little bit as you made that pivotal move in your life from being a professor to deciding to be a full-fledged, full-time artist. Could you share with us when you had an aha moment in your career as an artist, a time when you realized that, hey, I can really make it doing this, doing what I'm passionate about and what I love? Well, in addition to what we mentioned in in our last question, you know, I... It was a real problem that I had when I first started sculpting cars. I mainly did it for myself. Uh, I didn't uh, I didn't sculpt them in the very beginning uh, for any economic reason. I just loved them and wanted to uh, sculpt them. But how can an artist subjectively, subjectively compete with the perfect mathematical model? I had quite a fight with myself there for a while, and... Uh, I really appreciate a great model maker, but it's all mathematical. And I understand the relationship with art, math, uh, with art and the golden mean and so forth. Uh, But this mathematical geometric models as opposed to organic amorphous art really aren't as different as as I had thought they were in the beginning. Uh, Give an example of this. I'm going to have to talk about the goal and mean a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> most humans like uh, like 
the proportion of the golden mean. It's, uh, for example, the eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper. If you've ever wondered why paper was that specific um, uh, shape, why it wasn't nine by eleven or eight by ten, but ninety percent of uh, of all humans like this particular ratio, and most of the frames that are on your walls are the same decimal equivalent. Uh, the uh, the golden proportion is based on the uh, decimal equivalent of about 1.618. In other words, A is to B is as uh, A and B are to the whole. Uh, it has a very close relationship to the Fibonacci sequence of numbers, and the golden spiral is derived uh, from this number, and it can be seen in uh, seashells and pine cones, that spiral. And also how things tend to grow, like horns or fingernails, if you let them grow long enough, will take on this same logarithmic spiral. Another interesting aspect of the golden mean is uh, in music, which I, I really, as I mentioned before, I love music, and there's one chord that's most pleasing to the human ear, and this chord has the same decimal equivalent as the visual. What does that sound hit when it goes into your ear? The first thing it hits is the cochlea, configuration of a shell. It's a logarithmic spiral. All of this is is just fascinating to me, how this this works. And when I... uh, try to compete with uh, math, I always think about this, that math and and the arts are very close together. They have to do with each other. Uh, I do extensive research, uh, and I always start with a stance of knowledge. I I know the uh, wheelbase. I know the track. I know everything mathematically about this car that I'm about to uh, sculpt. However, I really take creative license with the facts, and if it'll help, uh, if it'll help the meaning or the composition, I have to, I have to change whatever I need in order to establish a symbol. Facts uh, really have nothing to do with it. They really bore me. I'm more interested in truth. So even though I know the uh, uh, wheelbase of the track, I don't always use it. I feel really comfortable in stretching history and condensing time and space to bring together a kind of a, a dramatic depiction of the spirit of the subject. It becomes a symbol or a gestalt or a truth. And to me, cold exactitude is not art. The spirit and form are really more important. And the content and meaning are also important. But form, uh, the structure, is the first consideration. And good design is the structure that supports the statement. And if the form and statement successfully interact, a symbol is born. It becomes more than the sum of its parts. For example, um, the unstyled integrity of the early race cars are really hard to measure mathematically. It doesn't give the spirit of the car and, and uh, of the driver and of the times. Kind of like a model without a driver it's like a clock without hands and a car that's not moving is the same to me and uh till you put a man or especially a woman uh something magical happens and it becomes synergized but uh, the most important point is uh, you know some of the most beautiful automobiles in the world if you think about a um, oh a 2900 alpha or a special roadster mercedes or something 
and you think, oh, that thing looks like it's going 100 miles an hour and it's parked at the curve. It's not even moving. And it was designed to look that way from a human height. But if you get on a ladder and you look down at it, it's almost as wide as it is long and it looks like a toad. Uh, there's nothing beautiful about that car except at a human height. Well, when I put together a sculpture, it's small enough that it's on a pedestal. People can walk around it. They can see it from the optimum side, uh, broadside. They can see it from above. They can see it from front and the back and below. 360 degrees I'm responsible for. And so I have to change things in order that they remain the same. If I want that car to look like it's going 100 miles an hour, not just from the human aspect, but from above, then I, it's my responsibility as an artist to narrow it, lengthen it, do what I have to do, change the lines of the car so it looks like this lump of bronze is moving. And I use every device that I can uh, in order to do that. So... Uh, also, an artist can make it look like it's uh, moving in other ways. And if it has a human driver, and especially women, I don't know what it is about women and cars and women and motorcycles, but there's some kind of magic there. <laughs> Absolutely. If you were a car, Stan, what kind of car would you be and why? Well... I know given your... Your history and experience with cars, this has got to be a tough question. That's a, that's a hard choice to make, uh, Mark. I, uh, but I'd probably have to choose uh, one of my bronze sculptures, which I consider milestone cars. Um, maybe the Thomas Flyer or uh, Schuster um, drove in New York, Paris in 1908. Uh, I, are you familiar with that story? Uh, no. Oh, this is really a good story. Let me just, uh, I know it'll take a little longer here, but I think it's worth it. My bronze uh, called New York to Paris 08 is, concerns the Thomas Flyer, in which George Schuster was the driver, and uh, other countries decided that they wanted to join in this race from New York to Paris. And so uh, on Lincoln's birthday, the 12th of February, they all met in uh, New York City at Times Square. There was not only the Thomas Flyer, there was uh, two cars from France, one from Germany, one from Italy, and uh, they took off. In places, there was four foot of snow on the ground between New York and Chicago. They had to pretty much dig their way uh, most of the way. But once they got there, they uh, decided they would, the reason they decided to go in the wintertime was that they felt that they could cross the Bering Straits while it was still frozen. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is better than the Jules Verne novel. <laughs> Some of the things that happened were, were just unbelievable. Uh, in this, uh, They had an Arctic explorer with them, uh, Captain Hans Hansen. He was six foot five, and he could help push him out of the... He, he was actually kicked off the French car, and the, the Americans picked him up in... Uh, uh, Chicago and took him so it's fortuitous but they had a chronicler from the New York Times there it had took homing pigeons with him and he uh, uh, he sent out a couple of stories every day and consequently there were more there was more written in the New York Times about this race than any other subject except the world wars 
really kind of interesting. So that would be a fun car. There's the Winton I just mentioned, uh, the first Continental Crossing. The W196 Mercedes that my bronze called Quicksilver, where Fangio won nine Grand Prix in 1954. There's the Marmon Wasp, which would not be a bad car to to be, I guess. And uh, that was the first Indy winner in 1911, where there were 40 participants. Ray Haroon was the driver. There's the 375 millimeter Spider that Phil Hill and Richie Ginther uh, ran the Panamera Mexico race in uh, '54. There's James Dean's Spider, Porsche Spider, and David Bruce Brown's uh, big 1960 yacht. Any of those would be great, but if I had to just choose one, I'll tell you what it has to be, and that's the Alpha HC 2900B short wheelbase Spider. I did a bronze of that called Freewheeling. It's a 40-inch bronze with a woman driver and a dog. And to me, that uh, aesthetically is the most beautiful thing that was ever built. Wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. This concludes the first half of my interview with Stan Wanless. Look for show number 32 to listen to the second half of a great interview with the artist Stan Wanless. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.